Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 65, the hemisphere-spanning movie review podcast with me, Dan, out of lockdown in Melbourne. Hooray! And me, Conrad, hoarding toilet paper in Cambridge, UK for lockdown too. Oh, we're, we're <laughs> in opposite worlds, Conrad. <laughs> I know. One in, one out. It's like the seasons. Yes, yes. In this podcast, <laughs> we discuss overlooked genre films, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. Because haunted houses, the madness-induced drowning of children, and sexual encounters on the front lawn are in our job description. <laughs> really? <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> I want to renegotiate that one. <laughs> How are you, Conrad? Oh, bracing myself for re- Returning to lockdown again, apparently the UK is going and we're recording this uh, like a week before it comes out. So right. it may well be that we're in it by the time you're listening Ooh, to me. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, meanwhile, over here in Melbourne, uh, Australia, we are finally able to dine out and go to a Ooh. restaurant. We had breakfast this oh morning and it was glorious. Going out for breakfast. This is not something that happens in the UK very much, I don't think. Oh, it's a staple of any Melbourneian. It's uh it's almost ah. it's almost mandatory. <laughs> is it <laughs> <On okay>. weekends? <laughs> <laughs> so you you have breakfast and then brunch, or is it no just brunch? It's just brunch. It's it's almost oh, okay. like the only meal you have that day. Oh, I guess you would have right. dinner later on, but <laughs> <laughs> It's that big. Is yeah, it? it's that big. It's that sort of luxurious and relaxing. Oh, wow. That sounds like a great way to do a Sunday. It's just to eat an enormous brunch and go into a food coma. Yeah, that's pretty accurate, actually. <laughs> Melbourne life. Oh, I want to move there. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of other countries, have we had any mailbag today from around the world? Yes, and I've been quarantining it for 48 hours, but I can open it now. Oh, yeah? Yes. <laughs> so, so we had some feedback on the Night of the Living Dead episode with special guest Megan Navarro. Yes. Uh, Scott Scotch Howard referring to the <laughs> incessant hammering in the second act of the movie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He says, hammering or not, this film has inspired me to start using yo-yos as an insult. Let's bring it back. <laughs> oh, yes. Goddamn yo-yos. Damn you, yo-yos. <laughs> Well, at least it's not too offensive, is it? Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you know when you're a child, where you you would say someone was a an egg or something. <laughs> yeah, it's not really that offensive. <laughs> no, uh, all the things I used to say as a kid were all poo related. Oh yes, it was always poo. Uh, yeah. Of course. Of course. And of course, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures, 
Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. Who said about Night of the Living Dead, As a remake, I quite like what Night of the Living Dead manages to do. It keeps the same basic plot of the original, but still manages to play with your expectations, some self-referential moments and a wholly different climax, whilst throwing on a well-deserved fresh coat of paint. Which I think is very true. That's very well put, Serge. It is, yeah. I agree. Basically, we could have read that out at the beginning of the episode and then gone home <laughs> or gone for brunch. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and excitingly, we also had a new review on uh, iTunes oh, for our podcast. Yes, yes. What did they say? So Nobuko W via Apple Podcast says, I discovered this podcast through Cold Crash Pictures weekly tweets. So that backhander we're giving Serge is paying off. (laughs) As I am a dedicated fan of Serge's YouTube video essays and generally interested in his film opinions, however odd the film in question, his tweet-alongs intrigued me enough to give this podcast a listen. It's quite frankly a singularly enjoyable experience. I have barely any familiarity with the films discussed, except Lady Hawk. You monsters. The 80s synth score is a decadent delight and clearly elevated it to new heights of cinematic entertainment. Right. Well, we will respectfully disagree on that aspect. I love it, though. You monsters. And none with the host, but their chemistry is palpable, the banter immensely enjoyable, their discussions fascinating and well-articulated, and the format incredibly fun. I'm still making my way backwards through their past episodes, but can definitively say this is a solid show and would highly recommend everyone give them a listen. You can't really hold the blasphemous Ladyhawk beliefs against them too stringently. We must be gracious to those unfortunate souls who cannot know the depths of joy and hilarity of said film and pity them accordingly. (laughs) (laughs) That's a stunning review. Wow, thank you. It is, yes. So thank you so much, Nobuko W. And I'm sorry that we trashed Ladyhawk. (laughs) We did like a lot of aspects of Ladyhawk. We did. I think Muted, it's a great film. Yeah, that's very true. So if you would like to drop a review for us, positive or negative or a fun mixture of both, we would love to hear from you. Please do hit that review button. Yes. So what film will we be reviewing today, Dan? Well, I will just go get it. I'm in some sort of attic room. Mm, It's very chintzy. And there's... Someone in a wheelchair? Hang on. Oh god, I'm getting crash zoomed into the movie! I've been waiting for you, Ben. Oh god, lock the window! Ah! Oh! <laughs> okay, I made it out through that top window. Wow. Luckily, not on this family station wagon. <laughs> you just, just missed that, did you? Yeah. <laughs> That's fortunate. Of you. I think that's our most dramatic movie retrieval ever from the UK. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely shocking. Uh, mm. Well, the movie we are doing today is from 1976. It is Burnt Offerings. Oh, I've never heard of this at no, all. No, me who, who? neither. Me neither. So it is a supernatural horror film filled with ghosts or maybe not so filled with ghosts. Uh, directed by Dan Curtis, based on a novel by Robert Marasco, 
and screenplay by William F. Nolan and Dan Curtis. And what happens in it? In Burnt Offerings, a family, Ben, Marion and son David and Aunt Elizabeth rent a majestic old house for the summer with an elderly lady benefactor staying in the forbidden room upstairs. Mm. It's a completely normal summer vacation. Ben almost drowning David, Marion spending a disconcerting (laughs) amount of time listening to a creepy music box and your usual haunted pool that just wants (laughs) to have a good splishy splash. Is the cursed house making these things happen or are Ben and Marion's marriage just on the rocks? Everything escalates to the final conclusion, equipped with crash zooms, body hurtling and collapsing (laughs) chimneys in... Bit offerings. Ooh, wow. I'm in the mood for a haunted house movie. I am too. And we will be joined by a very avid fan of this movie and the person that introduced us to this movie. Yeah, we could use an experienced guide, I think. Yes, yes, indeed. After the break. Back soon. Our guest today is the Mountain Time correspondent of the Corpse Club podcast and senior columnist at The Daily Dead, where he moonlights as the car hop of the drive-in dust-off, serving a steady diet of delicious horror film retrospectives. I'm very pleased to welcome Scott Drebbit. Hey! Thank you very much. Uh, You're coming with me to every engagement, is that correct, Conrad? Uh, For introductions like that? (laughs) Wow, thank you for having me on the uh, show. It's just great to bring people together in something that we actually enjoy like horror it is yes how are things for you where you are uh well i'm up here in uh calgary alberta canada and we're in kind of a stage two reopening Mm. playing it safe social distancing the whole uh nine yards most people adhere some don't i'm sure that's no different for either of you two gentlemen. <laughs> yep. It's the case all over the world. <laughs> yep. Living our life on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we kind of do that anyway, but yeah, I see your point. A little more than usual. Yeah. Mm. So today we are talking about burnt offerings. This is not a movie I have ever heard of. Conrad, had you heard of this movie? I had not, no. And I'm always thrilled to discover a spooky, dark old house movie from the 70s that I haven't seen before. Scott, you recommended this film to us. I wonder if you can kick us off by talking about uh, why you recommended it for us to talk about and what your history is with it. Sure, of course. This is the first horror movie that I saw uh, in a theatre at the age of six. My mom took me. Wow. (laughs) The rating system was quite different in North America anyway. This movie was rated PG, but, you know, it's quite intense. And six is probably too young anyway, but (laughs) who am I to judge? Naturally, it terrified me, but it wasn't a traumatic, terrifying sensation. It was a thrilling one. It was one of excitement. It was, yes, that scared me. Can we watch that again? So... You know, upon first revisiting this movie many, many years ago, I guess when it came out on videotape in the early 80s, then it was through the eye of nostalgia. Um, I remember it being my first movie and, and I loved it, but it was just because it was my first horror movie. Now, after annual viewings, <laughs> I've seen it quite a bit and 
I think it's just stood the test of time as a great haunted house movie that I think has been influential down the line and has kind of been that it doesn't always get mentioned. Yeah. I mean, what's surprising about this movie was you don't actually see any ghosts. Well, well, yeah. Maybe. There's the chauffeur. Yeah. But that's <laughs> one of those ghosts, quotation marks, that is it's more of a you know a personification of a fear rather than a natural ghost. Well, it's all questionable, isn't it? That's the thing that's fascinating about this movie. It's kind of like The Haunting in that you're not entirely sure whether anything is really happening or whether somebody is just losing their marbles. And I do like a movie that can walk that fine line delicately without it really falling on one side or the other. Mm. Yeah, I think um, if you see the movie often enough, or any movie often enough, I think something that's ambiguous, you end up having to come up with some concrete reasoning or you'll go mad. (laughs) (laughs) So I've always been, after seeing it many times, I've been of the belief that it is something that comes from the psyche and is brought forth into the real world and just as soon taken away again. You know, when Ben was living back in New York, the dreams he had from his childhood were just that dreams. But when he's in this house that has this special hold over people, it manifests physically, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that this movie is very influential. I definitely saw the influences on movies like Amateur Horror and The Shining Mm. and also um, The Changeling. Mm. I watched that recently and there are some very clear similarities between The Changeling and this movie. Oh, absolutely. And it goes back to The Haunting and, um, you know, The Legend of Hell House. Any time where the film features the house as a character unto itself Mm. and has a strong presence, I think the best movies have that where it's not the people that are in the house it's in the bones of the house itself and the changeling has that the shining has that stephen king has said in his book dance macabre that the book version by robert morasco was a direct influence on the shining Mm. you know so if he comes out and admits it well you're not stealing that's building upon something or or paying homage of course of course (laughs) and it's one of my favorite books as well. And there are some differences that I'm sure we can touch on really quick. But um, so, yeah, there's so many wonderful, great things about uh, Burnt Offerings. Just let it out already. Okay. Are we done? No. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a question about the book because there is a very clear difference that the director has mentioned, and that's the ending. Mm. Uh, What is the ending in the book that's different? The ending in the book is much more esoteric. They differ as soon as Ben goes back up to check on Marion. That's where the book and film veer off. In the book version, Ben goes up and it just becomes this wonderful prose about expanding light. And it's really quite beautiful and menacing at the same time. And then it's kind of done. Okay. Dan Curtis thought that was a crock of shit. (laughs) He said, what the hell kind of ending is that? We got to have something happen. So then he made it Ben going into the room, seeing Marion become the new Mrs. Allardyce, as it were, and Ben go flying out the window. And then, of course, it's the 70s where nihilism rules. So make sure you kill off Davy, too, 
under a ton of bricks. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it was the trend. <laughs> so yeah, the book ends on a much more mysterious, esoteric note, whereas Dan Curtis wanted some concrete action for the end of the film. Other than that, they're fairly close. The book spends a little more time in New York City to get the dynamic of uh, Ben and Marion's relationship down first before they head out. But other than that, it's up until the ending, it's pretty close. Right, yeah. I did hear that there was a big chunk of the movie that was just cut out, the 15 minutes of the movie that was just cut out where they did establish the New York City and finding the ad for the house and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think that was a good idea to cut it out. I felt getting straight into it was much more exciting, I guess. I would question that. <laughs> but you don't get an idea that there's anything wrong between the couple without that introduction, without that longer sure. introduction. Okay. And you don't get it really until she starts to pull away from Ben in the movie. But you're thinking it's just because of the house. Now, perhaps it is, but it could also be the growing resentment between the two of them and the house is feeding off that and making them more distant towards each other. So... They both work well. I just think in the book, it gives it a little more resonance. It's there in the book. I think it works well enough in the movie. Hmm, yeah. Sure. I mean, I think it does undermine one of the themes in the movie, uh, or at least in the book, that is very powerful and is sort of still there in the movie if you look for it, which is, well, there's a combination of things. One is the white flight, which is that Marion is desperate to get away from where they're living in the city and to go out to the country and to go to this great big manor house, this estate, and to live a life that's beyond their means that she aspires to and becomes increasingly obsessed with the material throughout the movie to talk about this house has everything that we've ever wanted and this house is full of treasures. She becomes so obsessed with the material that she forgets her kids drowning in the pool, you know, mm. that kind of thing. So it sort of plays into that aspect of it, which I always thought there's a particular strain of haunted house movie in the 70s I think I noticed it with the Amityville Horror most prominently, where it's less about there's a gateway to hell under your house and more about I think I can't afford the mortgage. <laughs> I think there is a financial anxiety that underlies all of them. There's a lot of focus on money going missing in the Amityville Horror, and they're always buying houses that are suspiciously cheap, mm. which you should really run away from. Sure. So I think that aspect is lost because you don't get to see what their life is like before right. they go to this grand house. Yeah, there's no comparison. Yeah, again, it's just tied down to, you know, one or two sentences in the movie to get the point across. Mm. Mm. At six, you know, by the end of the movie, what stayed with me more than anything were, were a couple things. Uh, the chauffeur, of course, while everyone else, all the grown-ups in the audience were killing themselves laughing, <laughs> which I couldn't figure out why. I thought he was the most terrifying sight I've ever seen yeah. in my life. So that, and it was also the first movie where I saw Oliver Reed, mm. you know, the, the whispered intensity and he uses it to such, you know, good effect in this movie when like when he's talking with Marion, he's uh and he says, uh, would you would you Marion would would you leave? Would you leave if I asked you to, Marion? Would you? And I fell in love with the man ever since then and would try to track down everything 
of his that I could see just so I could get a little more of that unique voice. Mm. Sure. Yes. I love how much his voice is quivering in that final confrontation with her. He can barely get a syllable out. He's quivering so much in fear. Yeah. And he really sells it. And for such a towering slab of masculinity as Oliver Reed is, I think it's very brave of him to appear in a movie where, I mean, he doesn't come off particularly well. Uh, he's not a great father figure. And there's a whole sequence in it where he is literally powerless to stop something from happening. And then he ends up being terrified of a manifestation of his wife, which is unlikely for 1976. It's surprising when so many stars are very particular about maintaining a certain persona on screen. Yeah, you know, it is a very different kind of role for him. There's a weakness, there's a vulnerability to his character. Mm. But I think he's very good in the movie. And, you know, it's not the most unhinged thing I've seen him do. I think <laughs> it's true for most unhinged. You need to see his work with Ken Russell to really see him <laughs> let off the chain. I think here he's um, sympathetic when it's earned. And I think he can really turn on the malevolence that we all know is there when it's necessary as he begins to be taken over by the house. Because uh, I was about the same age as Lee Montgomery, myself as Davy. He was probably a little bit older. Mm. So to see a father figure uh, try to drown you in a swimming pool mm. yeah. <laughs> plays a different kind of horror to a little kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would never go swimming ever again if I'd watched that at age six. <laughs> <laughs> no. And that is a, another common thread, which is the father figure becoming a danger to the family that runs through a lot of these movies. But again, many of the movies that I'm spotting it in, as you said, Dan, they follow burnt offerings. They didn't come before it. Mm, yeah. Well, it is also worth noting that in those movies, the father becomes all-powerful and the wife becomes the victim. But it's it's almost the opposite here. Mm. Oh, it's completely the opposite. Marion is the one who is growing more powerful every day. Mm. And, and I think it's very interesting the way that Karen Black plays it, I think, because there are some times where she seems to know what she's becoming. And then there are other times where she breaks through that psyche and you see the old Marion come through. And I think she does a really good job of balancing. Oh, um, yes. I would have to say definitely that if I'm picking a person goes mad from being in a haunted house, I much prefer her turn here than I do Jack Nicholson's in The Shining. Because sure. he starts at 100 and goes to 350. And she... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty creepy to start off. There's a yeah. little bit more modulation. And I don't even think that that's Nicholson's fault necessarily. <laughs> sure. Well, I think it's the effect of Stanley Kubrick making you do 300 takes. Oh. <laughs> so it achieves two things. It makes Jack Nicholson look unhinged from the word go. And poor Shelley Duval have a nervous breakdown as the film continues mm, so yeah method directing is quite fascinating yeah yes. sure. uh going back quickly to karen black she did mention in the commentary that she had like a clear methodology of descending into this different character and tears of turning and finally in the end becoming the enemy 
of the family. It was a really interesting approach. Yeah, it is. And I think the moment that really terrifies me is the moment when you see her eating Mrs. Allardyce's dinners. Yeah. Because to begin with, she's taking up a tray and she takes it back every time untouched and gets concerned about it. And then she starts seeing it being nibbled at and she's satisfied that all is well with the mysterious woman in the locked room that you can never go in. Yes. And then eventually you discover that's because she's taking care of it herself. And the question is, does she know? I think she does know at some level and she's hiding it. I think it's like an addiction. It's something that she is covering up Mm -hmm. and is almost lying to herself about it. Yeah, because she's very defensive, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a great point. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to ask a really dumb question. So was there ever a Mrs. Allardyce? But see, that's not a dumb question because that's one of the central mysteries. Mm. Who or what is Mrs. Allardyce? Is Mrs. Allardyce, you know, some kind of malevolent being that just needs life to sustain Mm. itself? You know, is that just the name that was chosen? Or is there an Allardyce family tree that goes back centuries and is there a story as to why this house acts the way that it does it's never i'm so glad that it's never been explained or was explained because you don't always need to know everything just the idea Mm. of something sometimes is so much better yeah i mean leading up to that sort of final conclusion i was thinking oh are they gonna rip off psycho here are they gonna have mrs allardyce just be a corpse in a wheelchair but no they didn't do that Uh, and it was refreshing Mm. It is fairly obvious that Psycho was an influence on Dan Curtis when he was trying to come up with a new ending Hmm. for the movie. I mean, going into the locked room in the house and turning around the chair with the figure of the old lady and to discover that it's been somebody else dressed up all along is not that far (laughs) away. That scene in the theatre, again, guffaws from the audience when Karen Black turned around and you saw that it was her. And I'm, again, at six thinking, <laughs> why are these people laughing? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I'm really surprised by that. And also what you, you mentioned about the chauffeur, because those two scenes were the most terrifying in the movie. Yeah. And also in the most kind of modern as well. It didn't seem like an old 70s ghost movie when you saw those scenes. Um, the chauffeur for me is, yeah, you could see that character in a modern movie. Like, it didn't seem dated at all. No. Or funny, for that matter. It's my dumb question, actually. What is the chauffeur, and why is this alarming, disconcerting, grinning figure the only thing that Ben remembers from his mother's funeral? Yeah, I mean, we could armchair psychologist it all day long. (laughs) I personally just think it's, you know, when they were in New York, he was having the dreams. Mm. The anxiety of the big city life was really getting to them and the pressure between the two of them. So I think the chauffeur coming back again and manifesting in reality is due to the house playing off of Ben's, you know, worst memory, worst fear. Yeah. I think it also just acts as a great specter of doom, you know, a great manifestation of death itself. Yeah. Hearing that chauffeur pull up to the house and then kick open the door and you hear him dragging the coffin up the stairs. Well, I know I had nightmares for weeks. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) I had to go back for more. (laughs) (laughs) The use of sound was magical in this movie. And especially that scene with the chauffeur did remind me a lot of the haunting Mm. with sort of banging behind walls, behind closed doors, like what is about to emerge. And it was, yeah, the payoff was 
amazing, just so terrifying. Especially with the coffin going directly at camera, it felt you were <laughs> you were in danger, you were in peril as a viewer. Yeah, that's Dan Curtis's low angles, which he mentions on the audio commentary that he can never shoot anybody straight on. He has to have the camera <laughs> waist level mm. angled up at them in some way because he finds it boring otherwise. Yes. yes. I was going to ask, Scott, if you could introduce us a little to Dan Curtis, because I don't know about you, Dan, but Dark Shadows did not make it to these shores. Did it make it to New Zealand? No, no, not at all. No, I hadn't seen anything from Dan Curtis. No, me neither. So when Tim Burton mounts this lavish motion picture remake or homage to this TV series, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> yeah, that would make quite a big difference. You know, as a kid growing up, the show was already a memory. It had already been off the air for a few years uh, by the time I was born. So the only way that I knew of that show was in the back of uh, Famous Monsters magazine. You would be able to get like eight millimeter prints for your eight millimeter projector at home of reels from the show Dark Shadows. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, the makeup kits that you could paint the glow in the dark oh, yeah. always had a Barnabas Collins. And I, I had never seen any Barnabas Collins material, but I just knew he was this vampire. But Dan Curtis surely played a large part in my childhood through TV, through the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler TV movies with uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. You know, that's how I knew him. And that became a TV, after two successful TV movies, it became a series that ran for uh, a year. And I used to see it late at nights on a Friday or Saturday, and I would get to stay up a little late and, you know, watch <laughs> Kolchak uh, chase a werewolf around a cruise ship, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> that's perfect stuff. And also Trilogy of Terror, which um, has one of the most terrifying segments in, I think, in, in horror anthology history with the uh, the one about the Zuni doll. And, and Karen Black, again, of course, having that relationship with Dan Curtis, plays three or four different characters over three episodes. Okay. He seemed to be more comfortable, I guess, in TV than film. I don't know if that was just because of the way he shot. But I know Burnt Offerings at the time was criticized because it had that soft focus TV look. I don't know. I just watched it on Blu-ray and I think it's actually filmed wonderfully. There is some soft focus in it, but it doesn't look like a TV movie at all. It looks like a theatrical film, you know, which is what it was. So he was a guy that was always respected by horror people, but I think it took a long time for critics to come around to what, you know, Dan Curtis really contributed to the genre. Sure, sure. You mentioned Soft Focus. So I'm not sure whether it was the DVD that I had, but the Soft Focus really annoyed me. It Did was it? so soft. Like, it looked like they'd smeared the lens with just Vaseline and <laughs> I was just peering through a misty window the whole time. They literally did in some cases. He mentions it on the commentary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were scenes that, like, they were detrimental to the movie, like, because you couldn't see as much detail as you would normally. So the house is sucking a life out of this family and getting more restored, I guess, restoring itself. But I don't know whether that came across on film as clearly as it should have. I mean, I see it in some places. I, I particularly noted that Mrs. Allardyce's 
what is it like her living room like a lounge yeah sitting sure. room sitting room yeah so that room when marion first walks into it it's dark dingy the wallpaper appears to be two different shades of black it looks like a room that's smoke damaged sure yes mm-hmm. and as the film progresses it slowly lightens it's still oppressive but it does slowly lighten as the film progresses i don't know if that's because it's been redressed or relit i think it's probably a combination of both mm. yeah Mm-mm-mm. i can say that you know as best my memory serves me 45 Four years ago, when I first saw this, oh my God, um, <laughs> it seemed clear to me. And our TVs were not, uh, you know, 4K HD, right? We, sure. we had big back tube TVs that uh, you had three channels. And if it wasn't completely snowy, you got good reception. So there wasn't as much scrutiny years later when I saw the videotape and the first DVD. Then it was much more apparent the soft focus and whether that was intentional or not. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that he filmed, he used that soft focus and I think he just carried it over. Yeah. The new Blu-ray that Kino put out last year, Kino Lorber, there is clarity to it where there wasn't before. So I would say if anyone is looking to see this movie, which by the way, for some reason is not streaming anywhere, which should be a federal crime. (laughs) Kino Lorber has it. It's not expensive. The Blu-ray does clean it up quite a bit, but it's still a soft focus movie overall. You know, you can't get every wrinkle out of the, uh, out of the sheet. So, yeah, I mean, it was obviously a stylistic choice. Um, There's another detail that I felt didn't come across from the soft focus. And that was, Karen Black's hair, mm. so Marion's hair throughout the movie gets progressively greyer, but I didn't see that. No, you can see it on the Blu-ray okay. a little bit more clearly. Right. Mm-hmm. Karen Black mentions on the commentary that the continuity wasn't always great because sometimes they would change the order of the scenes that they were filming, so right. <laughs> she didn't always have time to go and wash the grey out or put it in. Right, yeah. So, sure, yeah, sure. it was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, well, that makes sense too because, I mean, he's so used to filming a tv schedule mm. and he's trying to do a feature film probably in the same length of time that it takes to shoot an episode of a tv show oh, you know he sure. had a well-oiled machine you know she's not coming from that so yeah that's yes. probably exactly right what happened yeah uh, in the commentary they mentioned they wrote the script in two weeks and filmed the entire movie in 30 days Yeah, see, that's insane. (laughs) It is, yeah. And they did have to shut down briefly because I think Dan Curtis's daughter died in rather tragic circumstances, Mm. which unfortunately are mirrored by the climax of the movie, which he still hadn't filmed at that point, which is very sad when you read about it. Very sad. But he carried on and managed to get the movie finished, which is quite a feat, I would say. Right. One thing he does mention in terms of cinematography is that he contemplated doing 235, the full cinemascope widescreen, mm-hmm. which, of course, Robert Wise used so effectively in black and white on The Haunting. It seems like a great thing to do for a horror movie, particularly a dark old house movie, because then you have all these spaces from which things can leap out and spook you. But he uh, bottled it. (laughs) He didn't have the confidence to do it, so stuck with 185, Mm. which I think is a shame in some respects. I think it is too, because I think it's structurally a film that would work so beautifully with that ratio. Mm. It would make the material play bigger 
again, it comes back to, you know, his background and the style that he was comfortable with filming in. There are many people who think this is a TV film and it very well could be, except, you know, the production values are better. Mm. The script is better. The performances are better. And, and I think the ideas that are contained within this film are also better than what you would get out of a lot of TV, but it's a lot of people just get stuck on the aesthetic mm. and, and look at this movie and say TV movie, but it's, you know, aspect ratio aside, it is a very well shot uh, movie. Oh, it's amazingly shot. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I really love the use of Dutch tilts as well, which is very synonymous in horror now, but it looks great in this movie and all the low angled shots made it much more cinematic and sinister. The angled up shots, it occurred to me that the other time that I'd seen somebody shoot from the hip quite literally <laughs> throughout a whole movie and it being talked about was in E.T. where Spielberg ah. was quite deliberately trying to get the eyeline of a child and it occurred to me watching this movie that perhaps the protagonist or the person you're most meant to identify with right. is is Davy yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I think it does speak to a child's sense of horror more than an adult's which might explain why you were getting laughter for things that you were terrified by <laughs> in the screening that you remember so vividly right and Ben is put into that child role as well too because Marion doesn't believe him no you know his dotty old aunt uh, Elizabeth she believes him but the person he needs more than anything else in the world to believe him does not or simply refuses to and that's a great childhood fear yeah. that your parent will not believe mm. you yeah yes the film historian Richard Harlan Smith he likens the behavior of the parents to living with alcoholic parents, having experienced that himself, he sympathised with the uh, Davy characters, normalising this situation that he goes through this experience where his parents do something awful and then the next day has to forgive them for it sure. and try to just move on. And I thought that was a really interesting take on the material and why it resonates. Yeah, it's fantastic. It, it's all right there, isn't it? It's these malevolent forces keep pounding down on them and the mother says just tidy up and go play mm. after something traumatic has happened life must go on there's no stopping for forgiveness or grace it's again it's this it's that 70s nihilism that <laughs> having grown up in it it's much easier to look back on it and enjoy it than when you were actually in it but i find it quite funny as it's that you may think things are going to be okay, but you know what? They're really not going to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you paid your $5 and eaten your popcorn and you go home. And that's what a lot of my favorite 70s uh, horror movies, that's where they live. Mm. And I think they still resonate because when you see something so nihilistic, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to do anything to you your life still goes on, you know, and it's, it's important. I know some people can't get over the nihilism of the films of the seventies, but I say, if you're still alive and kicking, what are you so afraid of? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's catharsis, right? It's the possibility of doom and gloom, but you know, knowing that 
you're fine. You know, you're not going through the same thing and you can live another day. Mm-hmm. But you can experience what that's like as well that's through right. a horror movie. And again, that's why Curtis wanted to change the ending because for him, the book had no catharsis, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And it does and it doesn't. I guess it, it's open to interpretation. But cinematically, you know, you need your bricks. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! Scott, you're our special guest today, and you know this film like the back of your hand. What crispy, overdone piece of trivia would you ask at a pub quiz about this movie? (laughs) What are two other films that were filmed at the same location, the Dunsmuir House? Oh, so what are the films? Well, Phantasm. Oh, all right, really? The Morningside Mortuary. And uh, A View to a Kill. It was Tanya Roberts' house in uh, A View oh. to a Kill. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right in Oakland, California. Right across the bridge. Yeah. yeah now you say it, I recognize it. You can you can do two. The wife has been, uh, for my birthday one year, she's going to take me. We're going to fly <laughs> in there and, and do a tour of the Dunsmere uh, house. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Is it still looking yeah. spick and span? Oh, yeah. They do. It's a historical um, landmark now. So they... Uh-huh. They hold, they hold weddings there and everything. Yeah, they do tours. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's perpetually lovely. Yeah. <laughs> they do Bad. weddings yeah. there. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know whether I would want to get married there. Thrown out the top window. I do remember reading that the greenhouse that they added to the house just for this movie is still there. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 I wonder if it's fully in bloom <laughs> rather sinisterly. Wow. And that's our trivia. Hey. You could interpret Burnt Offerings as, if you'd watched it at the time that it came out, as Marion being the villain Mm. of the movie and being evil. But I kind of watched it in that she was almost like the hero. She was like the anti-hero of the movie and Ben was the villain. And so the payoff at the end was actually really satisfying for me. (laughs) I'm getting thrown out the window. (laughs) Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. You could easily see it in both ways. Yeah. You could see it from the male perspective of this woman becoming increasingly obsessed with the house and ignoring her family and rejecting his sexual advances, which he's owed as a husband. Mm. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What an evil harpy she is. And she even dares to grow older and be unattractive at the end as well. (laughs) So you could see it that way round, or you could see it as him being this bully that's denying her everything she wants. And so she throws him out of a window at the end. (laughs) So really the only blameless victim in all this is poor Davey, who ends up getting a chimney on his head for his troubles, which is really sad. Poor kid. (laughs) And and I think Aunt Elizabeth gets the short end of the stick too, because she had lots of good years of uh, painting and smoking left in her, probably. Yeah. (laughs) But it's interesting seeing Ben as... I see Ben as a victim as much as I see Marion... As a victim, uh, he's manipulated by her. She's manipulated by the house. Mm. There's that theme of abuse that runs through it, right? Mm. The house to Marion, Marion to Ben. Ben takes it out on Davy. The house just decides Aunt Elizabeth doesn't belong there. And that's <laughs> that. So I, I don't think Marion's portrayed as the villain at all, at least not to me, because there are moments, and certainly at the end, 
she snaps out of her fog mm. and saves Davy in yes, the pool. Yes. And she says, we're getting out of here now. And that's if it had been made in the 80s or the 90s or beyond, it would have ended with them leaving the house and gone. But not in the 70s. God damn it. Mm. You're going back <laughs> in that house and you're going <laughs> to jump out the window, crash through the windshield of your wagon, and then your son is going to die under a ton of uh, falling bricks. Yes. The 70s. I don't know why they were like that, really. I find it just immensely appealing and humorous now to come through the other side and think there was just a lot of really, I don't want to say cynical, because they certainly believe in what they were doing, but it, they're not optimists. Let's put it that way. A lot of 70s <laughs> sure. There is no optimism, but... What are you going to do? <laughs> so, Scott, you mentioned the use of sound. I thought the use of music was really amazing in this. I always love it in movies that use music, like, you know, diegetically. So the music box is a very prominent part of the movie and how Marion is always fixated on playing it. I see very clear similarities to the changeling with the use of the music box as well as sort of a plot device. But, yeah. That sort of creepy theme that just keeps coming back throughout the movie and then, of course, played at the very end. Just so well done. Yeah. Yeah, that composer did a lot of TV work with Dan Curtis as well, I do believe. But he has done some TV horror. I'm, I'm sure of it. I know I've written about it, but who's getting any younger, right? Yes. <laughs> anyway, it is a fantastic, minimalistic score precisely what the film needs to breathe and to help it expand. I loved it, yeah. It kind of has that problem visually, but that music helps that mood to expand beyond the visual. It's a really great soundtrack. Oh, it's incredible. It's just really good use of musical themes that come back as well. Mm. Even the theme used for the chauffeur is just oh, so haunting and terrifying. So the composer's name is Robert Cobert, is that right? Yes. It looks like when you read it, it should be pronounced Robert Coppert, but that's just my sense of humor. Um, Conrad, what were your thoughts on the score? I really liked how sparse it was. It wasn't overly spotted. And even when it was there, it wasn't overly orchestrated either. It mm. just seemed to sort of tickle at the edges. I do think that if a family pulls up to a new house that's cheaper than they expected and far too large, and there's a cello drone on the soundtrack, you should just turn around and just just leave immediately. I mean, <laughs> you're right. We should be able to hear those things in real life if something ominous was happening. Wouldn't that should, be great yes. if you had an app or something that would just pop on? Yeah, start a cello sawing away. You go, right, turn around. Yeah, and you know as soon as the music gets really, really quiet, something bad is about to happen. Yeah, well, that was another thing I was going to mention in terms of it being so sparsely spotted. That seven-minute sequence of Oliver Reed walking up the stairs and uh, to his final comeuppance yes. in Mrs. Allardyce's room, it's only half scored. And it's towards the latter half. So you have a good three and a half minutes in complete silence with just the clocks ticking, wondering what the hell is going to happen, mm. but knowing full well it's not going to be good. I mean, kudos to a composer who is confident enough and a director who's confident enough to just let a scene play mm. and not comment on it. And yet, by doing that, increasing the suspense mm. tenfold because I, I swear to you gentlemen i was literally on the edge of my seat during the ending of that movie 
when he comes back and I'm saying, don't go back. Why would you? Come on, man. Why are you going back in the house? It's not going to be good. And then, like you said, there's no manipulation. There's just you are just forced to watch to see how it plays out. And then the music starts to rub itself into your nerves. Mm. It's designed expertly by people who I think really appreciate terror and dread mm. and enjoy seeing people scared from it. Like I said, nihilistic, but not cynical because they know how to do this stuff and they truly believe in the material. Yeah. There were a few places where I think we could have done without music. I think there's a scene early on where they're just settling into the house and Davey has that wonderful line about finding some ding-dongs. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't even know what they were. I didn't know what a ding-dong is either. We don't get them here either, so. No, I don't know if they still exist. Probably. They probably do, yeah. No, there's this really creepy, scary, busy music going on. But you can forgive the odd cue here or there that you think, hmm, maybe that shouldn't be there. And again, I think that's just the fear that coming from TV, where the music cues had to really help move the story along because of budgets. And I think that's that fear with him working on the big screen. Well, I don't want a dead moment. Mm. And what do we do on TV when we don't have a dead moment? We need the music to help push mm. it along, right? Yeah. And I think that's a carryover of that. So, But it doesn't happen that often. It's like, no, the, no, like no. we said about the visual style. I don't think it's right when critics say this just looks like a TV movie. There are moments when it does. Similarly with the score, you can tell that Bob Cobert has worked on television, but it doesn't sort of undermine the movie constantly. There's just a couple of places where you think, ah, yeah, I can see his roots. Uh, yeah, yes, for yes, sure. Yes, yes. I really like The Dread. I love movies that are constantly from the word go heralding doom and gloom <laughs> the shining is another example of you know from the word go it's like yes this movie's gonna end in in all sorts of bad and you know it <laughs> from the score and i love that i think that's great well and there's when you're dealing with material like this you know this isn't halloween or this isn't jaws where you're dealing with a fallible potentially fallible objects something to set your sights on you're mm. you're dealing with a house so you have to approach it from a different angle than the visceral i guess yes 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 apart from the chauffeur which i will curse him till the day i die that <laughs> chauffeur anthony james who just passed away last year i think or earlier this year god bless him he's a great actor but i hate him i hate him i hate him <laughs> yeah it, it, it gets under your skin without you even knowing it without showing it you know it doesn't need to show an actual ghost yeah there are actually very few supernatural events that happen in the movie there's a couple of doors closed by themselves the haunted pool of course and um like the vine that grabs ben yeah yeah and then the final scene with the chimney and that's it hardly a handful of actual supernatural events and it relies solely on performance and the performance really brings it yeah. yeah. Performance and mood. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because they set that mood from the start. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And also because usually the old Dark House movies, they have two parallel plots, don't they? One is the supernatural events and the other is somebody going to the library to try and figure out why it's all happening and then finding it out and resolving the whole thing so the family can drive away and live happily forever after. Mm. This doesn't have that. There isn't a reason. If there is, you don't find out what it is. Mm. It's just a house that eats people. Yeah. It's pretty terrifying yes yeah it really is and certainly i think 
almost all of my favorite horror films have that sense of ambiguity and by various degrees you know by a small degree i have halloween where it was a little kid who snapped and 15 years later he wrecks havoc on a town that he grew up in and that's all you know about the character Mm. phantasm if i have a phantasm tattoo i've met don coscarelli i've watched it 700 times i don't know what it's about (laughs) the phantasm movies actually get more confusing as they progress. <laughs> so by, is it the fourth one? I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> we can chat off air if you want. I can give you a detailed <laughs> diagram. And I'm a big Phantasm <laughs> series fan, but that's another podcast, another episode. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. not. Who says you'll ever have me back again? That's that nihilism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's that 70s nihilism. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theater, it's the prestigious Moobly Award. It's the Moobly Awards. It's where we emerge from the haunted swimming pool, armed with our favourite creepy music box parts of the film in the number of forbidden room categories. Best quote. I'm going to choose one from a character that barely has much screen time, and that is of Arnold. Mm. So he's pretty creepy character for how long he is on screen but he is talking to marion and and asking her oh do you like the house and she responds oh we love it and then he replies and it's it's purely performance delivery with one word and it's really and that sort of <laughs> inflection up that just makes it yeah. seem way more sinister than it should <laughs> to have burgess meredith oh, of course delivering the line right mm. now is my first burgess meredith sighting too and actually i think maybe my favorite quote would be from him as well and that's when um Roz, his sister wife mother fellow alien who knows (laughs) who knows right when Roz turns to arnold and says god when it comes alive tell them brother tell them what it's like in the summer and burgess kind of has this look on his face and he looks up and he says well they'd never believe it it's beyond anything that you have ever seen in your life (laughs) you know there's only one person that can deliver a line like that and really sell it and that's yeah you know burgess (laughs) he specialized in either being impishly delightful or impishly evil (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) i don't know how he does it i don't know either bless him yeah he is one of the greats best hair or costume okay costume betty hair Marion uh, at the uh, end, the the full up yes. Allardyce. As I when I go to the hair salon, that's what I ask for is the Allardyce, <laughs> yeah. just piled on top with the streak through the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that uh, music cue. Yes, of course. From the stock music cue. That's right. How about you, Conrad? I have to admire the action scene where he rescues his son from carbon monoxide poisoning in pink pyjamas mm-hmm. with flimsy white mule <laughs> slippers on. And he ah. keeps those on even when he's kicking the door in, which I think is great. And he still looks like he would just beat the shit out of anyone who got it. He does, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I would not mock him in his pink pyjamas. No. Never. <laughs> Most 70s moment. The station wagon, I think, and the clothes 
puts it very much in its time. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the station wagon. I looked it up. It's a Ford LTD wagon. Oh. And when I thought to myself, surely the 70s were the peak of the station wagon. It's even more specific than that. 1976 was apparently the peak of station wagon sales. Wow. Which is when this movie came out. <laughs> One million station wagons sold in the US, which accounted for 10% of car sales. It's now down to about 1% these days. I mean, right. when I think of a station wagon, I always think of National Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that wood paneled monstrosity that yeah. Chevy Chase drives. Wood paneling. Why? Why? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what did you have, Dan? I would actually go for more of a technical aspect. Um, so, like the soft focus was a very oh, 70s yeah. thing. It really got, sort of went out of fashion by the 80s and 90s, um, and everything was very crisp and, and clear. But yeah, the soft focus in this movie, yeah. very 70s. Also crash zooms. Mm. Yes. There are a couple of them in this movie, but even Kubrick does a crash zoom in The Shining which I always hate. I just wish that I could do like a non-director's cut and take that well, sucker out. And the one here at the <laughs> end has, you know, more of a Jerry Lewis uh, effect than anything. Why? Why? Then you got the jumping with the window in the nice and the good in the fall. Favorite scene. I'm probably going to go with the chauffeur's return when Elizabeth is uh, dying. Mm, uh, yes. that, is the, the, that one for me encapsulates the full dread of the film in one five minute little focused pocket. That's the scene that the six year old remembers the most. So <laughs> that's mm. the one that, that's the one the 50 year old's going to stick with, too. Yeah, I would 100 oh, percent okay. agree. Most terrifying scene. Great use of sound and music. And, and yeah, the. Oh, that chauffeur's face. It's going to haunt my dreams forever. Good, as long as yeah. it's doing it for someone else and not just me unhappy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> for me, I think it was the moment when Ben wakes up in the middle of the night and finds that the house is shedding its skin like a snake. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that is great. I do love that. I think that's the moment when, I think it's probably the first time that something overtly supernatural happens directly mm. in front of somebody. And it just feels to me like the tipping point. It's like that moment in Poltergeist where a tree breaks into the house to steal one of the children. Mm. And it's just that point of, right, we really do have to leave now. Yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most cliche horror moment. What I would maybe consider a cliche, but probably wasn't back then, was the forbidden room. Mm sort of the room that is shrouded in mystery that you never go to, the, the person that you never see, um, that's become a cliche. But yeah, I thought it was very well done in this movie. Yeah, that's a goth. It is a gothic tradition, isn't it? It's the, the room that you don't go in. Yeah. How about you, Scott? Here's the most benign one, the uh, the music box. The speaking ah, yeah. of gothic, right? It's yeah. used to great effect in here because they actually come up with an original tune mm. for the box, uh, which is very effective. But that's one that and you can't blame Burnt Offerings for doing it. It's been going on in gothic uh, horror for, you know, for centuries. Right. So, yeah. I think that's one that ties it. It's not so much 
a cliche, but it it, it ties its roots to the Gothic literature. Mm, yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, no, I, I that was the one that I went for, which is uh, just because I I keep spotting it everywhere. The music box, I mean. Candyman's theme, Jack the Ripper's watch in Time After Time. Oh. It happens in The Innocents, Hellraiser with the Lament configuration, and even recently in The Conjuring, there's a music box there too. So, <laughs> music boxes are creepy. The music box and the Forbidden Room are both also used in The Changeling. So, yeah, yes. some clear references there. I just watched The Changeling like two days ago, so it's very <laughs> clear in my mind. <laughs> Special effect. Are there any? Okay, the vines going around uh, the leg. <laughs> There's not a yeah. lot of effects in the no. film. Anthony James's makeup, I, I suppose, on the chauffeur and the way that's shot, especially when he comes into screaming full color uh, at the stop <laughs> at the top of the staircase. Um, mm. Keep coming back to yeah. that scene, but there's just it's not an effects movie it's a character driven movie right for sure for sure mm. i really like the house restoring itself scene mm. with like the cladding and the the tiling popping off yeah um, which was achieved really effectively they just glued on bits to the house and just flick them off Pulled with them wires off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it looks Why amazing not? though it looks really good yeah what was your favorite effect conrad the thing that struck me the most was oliver reed's face uh in the, in the windscreen just oh <laughs> yeah. because it has that that red red 70s blood uh, yeah. and the eyes wide and white and that sort of web of lattice work of shattered glass around his face and then the reverse angle of blood and something else splattering all over poor Davy. Yeah. And you think this is, it just reminds me of the set pieces in The Omen, except that you only have one of them. And after such a low key, slow burn movie, to suddenly have wham, take that kid, it's a bit of a shock. Mm. Yeah. So I thought it was a very good effect. Yeah. And I, I'm glad they sort of saved the best effect for last as well, because it really oh, yeah. was shocking. Oh, yeah. What was, was <laughs> I literally did say, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Favorite sound effect. The only sound effect that I could really mention is Aunt Elizabeth with her the back break sound effect. Oh it yeah, really that was... pronounced crack. Mm, that was hear. crunchy. Oh. Yeah, yeah, very mm. crunchy. And here's the thing too: is she does a great job of contorting her body mm. as an actress mm. to sell it. It's a great bit of physical acting. Yes. Mm, Along with that, yeah, that crack. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. She needs a chiropractor desperately at that <laughs> point, I think. <laughs> it's funny. I was going to say the best sound effect in the movie is Betty Davis's voice. Uh, oh. it, particularly in that scene, just because she's at that horror hag stage of her life and she's had 5,000 cigarettes or whatever it is <laughs> cumulatively by that point. So instead of a scream, she just has this terrible sort of. <laughs> <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most funniest moment. My funniest scene was actually that bowl scene. <laughs> because, really? <laughs> because I don't know. I just found it unintentionally funny because you have the shot of him holding this very expensive crystal bowl and then suddenly he just drops it. I just thought, I don't know, I found it hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> what I found the funniest was the relationship between the Allardyces and their caretaker, who 
looks after the house supposedly <laughs> when they're there mm-hmm. to me he's the biggest mystery because uh, they yeah. have this little bickering conversation with him back and forth yet they're these super malevolent family that you know he's there for comic relief but a comic relief from what he, I he's right there at the start of the movie like yeah. and then gone but he doesn't seem like he's you know working for satan or you know subcontracting out from the deck <laughs> yeah he must be completely oblivious to the amount of tenants that have gone through the house <laughs> right I'm cleaning up another car with blood all over it what is going on <laughs> and conrad funny scene my funniest scene was the sight of Oliver Reed mm. having a futile battle with a fallen tree. Oh, now, right, yeah. I know that the the shot of the vine wrapping around his leg, that is quite scary. Mm-hmm. What made me burst out laughing is after he manages to extract the evil dead vine from his leg, there's a branch that comes into shot and just sort of petulantly swats <laughs> at him. <laughs> Yeah, bitch slaps Oliver Reed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's some 80-year-old union guy sitting at home and he elbows his wife and goes, I was the one who hit him with that single branch. (laughs) I'm sure there is. He may still have the branch. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and that's our Mooblies. Yeah. Final verdict time, everyone, amongst the great haunted house movies, The Haunting, House on Haunted Hill, The Changeling, The Shining, does Burnt Offerings weigh in? Does it deserve to be launched out the upstairs window for all the world to be creeped out by? (laughs) Or should it be drowned in a pool and boarded up for all eternity, faded from haunted house history? Scott, you are our guest. You introduced us to Burnt Offerings. What, what's your final verdict for the film? Okay, so just to be clear on this concept, if I don't sell this thing and you guys don't agree with me, we drown Burnt Offerings <laughs> in the pool with Oliver Reed panting heavily on top of us. Is that is that what you're saying? That's Pretty much, exactly. yeah. <laughs> well, seeing this how it's, there's no way out anyway, because uh, it's Burnt Offerings in the 70s. But look, for people who haven't seen Burnt Offerings, there's no shame, there's no judgment. There are a million movies out there. Nothing gives me more thrills in life than introducing a movie that I love to someone else. It, what keeps us going as a film-loving community Uh, As a horror community, it's the greatest feeling. Even if I hadn't seen Burnt Offerings at the age of six and it being my first horror movie, and I'd seen it later, I would still think of it as possibly one of the finest haunted house movies because it does something a little different with its concept, because it has great performances by uh, stars of the 70s, because it's tightly directed, because... The score is minimalistic and creepy because the concept of a chauffeur who drives up pallid face with a smile on is coming to take me away, even Mm -hmm. at the age of 50, actually more so at the age of 50 than at the age of six, (laughs) is a little more terrifying. 
um, I will just say this to everyone out there. If you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor, track it down. If you love 70s movies, if you love haunted house movies, if you love horror movies in general, this is for me one of the best. Hmm. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Mike dropped. I would have to agree. There is one glaring production aspect of it that I just, I, I can't, the the soft focus is very distracting to me. But that's about it. I, I think the score is amazing. The performances are outstanding. And just the vision and Dan Curtis kind of trying to do something that isn't just another cliche movie. And there's no doubt that this movie influenced so many other movies. Um, Amitable Horror, The Shining, The Changeling. There's no doubt that this movie is influential. And it's, yeah, it's a shame that not many people know about this movie. But in saying all of that, don't go into this movie thinking, let's see some ghosts, because you're not going to see any. (laughs) No, that's true. It's for the connoisseur of the slow burn psychological, is this really happening or is it not movie? And if that's your bag and if you do love the cinema of the 70s and you think you've seen it all because you've seen the milestones, the the landmarks of the era, then this is a a really fun one that you probably have missed. That's why we've brought it up from the oubliette. Mm. There are some production aspects, as you say, that I have difficulty with. I think sometimes it betrays its TV roots on Dan Curtis's um, side, but not an awful lot, not as much as the critics make out, I don't think. Mm, A lot of it is shot really stylishly. There are some really genuinely creepy moments in it. There are some amazing performances from a lineup of actors that are legends in their own right mm-hmm. and it really does pack a punch at the end there you you're lulled into a false sense of dramatic security and then all of a sudden the movie slaps you in the face <laughs> so it really does i think it really does <laughs> with a palm so, it. <laughs> i'll be honest up until that moment i was sort of like it's interesting, but I'm not sure whether I would lift it up out of the... Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> People need to see this movie. <laughs> so, yeah, I think... Uh, and listening to you today cements that for me, that this is one, one of the reasons why we do this podcast. This is one of those ones you probably haven't heard of. And if you love this type of movie, you will enjoy this one. So mm. I would say yes, too. Yeah. Three yeses. Yay. It's free. <laughs> <laughs> So, Scott, it's been great having you with us to do a guided tour of the Burnt Offerings home. Mm. We've really benefited from your insight into this movie. Where can people follow you and gain further insights? Well, I can't promise any further insight or even that I offered any this (laughs) evening, but I'm on Twitter (laughs) at Phantasm2. And that's not because that's the best Phantasm movie. It's because the original at Phantasm handle was taken. Right. Oh. So quit asking me that, people. The original's the best. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, you can find me, of course, on dailydead.com. I have a column there, Drive-In Dust-Offs, uh, that I do weekly where I discuss films just like this from the 50s to the 80s, uh, the drive-in era. Of course, now, the days were back in the drive-in era not mm. we didn't arrive here in the in the best uh, uh way circumstances possible mm. but uh 
a great side effect of everything is that we actually have drive-ins are thriving right now. Mm, yeah. And uh, yeah, drop a line to me on Twitter or at dailydead.com and I'd love to hear from you and uh, let's talk horror. Yeah. Yes. And Scott, you are on a podcast as well, Corpse Club. Oh, I forgot. How did I not? <laughs> I'm on a podcast <laughs> and I don't mention the podcast I'm on. That's good. No, no. Five-year veteran. No, this, this, I'll blame COVID. <laughs> so listeners, please go to Daily Dead and listen to Corpse Club for more of Scott's horror insight. And if you'd like to follow our insights, then please do on all social media channels. We are at Movie Oubliette on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And why not send us a nice or not very nice email <laughs> to movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We do. And if you'd like to support the show, then head on over to Patreon, because for as little as a dollar, you could vote on or nominate films for us to feature in future episodes, nominate categories for the Moobly Awards, and for $5, you get access to all of our bonus content, including extended interviews with our special guests like Scott today. Yes, yes. We've actually just uploaded a bonus episode for you patrons, uh, discussing the 31 days of horror movies that I watched in October. Yeah, check that out. It's really fun. And we do love hearing your reviews about our podcast, just like Nobuko. <laughs> uh, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. Yes, please do. Especially if it's as funny as Nobuko's. <laughs> yes, yes. Conrad, what film are we going to be pouring over next time? Well, we're shifting genres and medium even because we'll be doing an animated science fiction film next time. Oh. One that's going to be celebrating its 35th anniversary wow. when the podcast goes out. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting. It's the 1985 animated dark science fantasy film Star Chaser. The Legend of Orin. Oh, we have not covered animation yet. Have we not? No. No, I suppose you're right. That's going to be a first. Ah, that's going to be a first for us. And I think it was the first 3D animated movie. Oh, wow. Cool. So this is going to be very exciting. And we will be joined by a special guest for that episode too. Somebody who worked on the movie. So very exciting. Wow, can't wait. Mm. Thanks, Scott, for introducing us to the wonderfulness of Burnt Offerings. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Listeners out there, we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Would you, would you leave, Marion? Would you, would you, Marion? Would you leave? Would you leave, Marion?